0: I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, October 30th. This is an election update from Post Reports. From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Liz went Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, October 30th. Today, will our democracy survive this election? What we were thinking during Trump's first term? And the rise of Sarah Cooper.
2: Mr. President, uh, real quickly, will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster.
0: On multiple occasions in the past few months, the president has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election.
2: You don't know until you see, it depends. I think mail-in voting is, is gonna rig the election, I really do.
3: A situation where the loser doesn't concede, you know, an incumbent doesn't concede the election when the results are clearly in favor of the opposition candidate. That does happen in other countries. We have not seen that in a democracy since we've been tracking these issues.
0: Sarah Rapucci is the vice president of research at Freedom House, an organization that studies democracies around the world. She spoke with Post Report's senior producer, Maggie Penman.
3: You know, the examples that I would point to are the Gambia in Western Africa or Cote d'Ivoire, also in Western Africa. Um, It happened to some extent in Bolivia last year. President Morales didn't step down. Then he did eventually step down and then a new election was held. I think that would be an extremely disruptive situation in the United States if we went to the point of holding a new election. Setting a precedent of that sort is not just something that would cause a lot of distrust in the result among the American population, but also that would send a signal to other countries that our institutions, which are supposed to be so strong, might not be sufficient for handling a highly contentious election.
4: What are the red flags you've been seeing in our democracy or the signals that you're seeing that you're concerned about?
3: We've actually been tracking a decline in U.S. democracy over the last nine or so years. So it's not new, but what we've been seeing are trends that have been accelerating and have been getting really to the heart of what our democracy is and what it means. So, you know, for years, we've, we've seen issues with economic equality. We've seen issues with the treatment of minority populations. We've had problems with gerrymandering that have impacted the electoral environment on and off. There have been problems with surveillance, but what we're seeing this year, the way that everything is coming together with a pandemic and then the election is the outcome of this election seems to have become extremely important for where US democracy goes. And I think that the norms in this country have been shifting over the past few years, but our institutions are very strong and have really resisted a lot of attacks say on independent media or on the independence of the judiciary. But I think you know regardless of who wins this election, we're we're going to be seeing a a change in the trend line of democracy in the US.
4: So I think this is something we hear a lot when we talk about our democracy is that, you know, no matter how polarized we are, no matter how much norms might change, we have these very strong institutions and we can count on those. Um, Is is that what you see or um, is that something that you see potentially changing in the current
3: climate? You know, norms always erode before institutions. And what we have seen is a shift in people's thinking about what is acceptable. For instance, we used to have a much stronger norm of transparency. People thought that the president of the United States should reveal his tax returns and that that was um, that was accepted as something that people had a right to know that has changed under this administration. Those kinds of small things have a longer term effect. Um, And I'll give you another example. So, you know, we used to have a very strong respect for the right of the press to criticize the government. And that's not true in every country. That is one of our strongest institutions here in the United States is our our right to free expression and independent media. The attacks of President Trump over the past four years on individual journalists and on the institution of the press is very new in this country. And those kinds of attacks affect people's opinion of the press and of what role they should be playing and of how they interact with the government. As those norms start to erode, you you set up a situation where it's much easier for the actual institutions to erode. Um, and what we at Freedom House have seen in other countries is certain things will change behind the scenes. People won't really see a change in their day-to-day life. And then a switch will flip and it will start to snowball. And then things will start to deteriorate very fast. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen in the United States, but I'm saying that we are in a position where it could happen.
4: And something we've been hearing a lot in recent months is that it's going to take longer than usual to count ballots this year, just because of the pandemic, because of the increase in the number of people who are voting by mail. What concerns do you have about that period between the election and when we learn who won?
3: It's very likely that we will not have a result on November 3rd, on November 4th. And that uncertainty that's going to be Generated simply by this process taking longer this year, only because there is a pandemic and more people are voting by mail this year. You know, it's not a sign of, of irregularities, of fraud, of a failure of the system, but people are going to start to fear that it is. And that time of uncertainty and the way that the leaders of this country respond to that uncertainty and whether they allay people's fears, make them feel that everything is okay, that the system is doing its um, part in our democracy, or if they stoke those fears and start to seed discontent and doubt and distrust, that is where we will really see the, the tension point and the, the critical point for the country of which, which direction we're going to go.
4: I think a lot of people hear these concerns about our democracy and say, you know, people are being alarmist. Um, Our democracy has survived for more than 200 years and it can't just fall apart. What do you say to that argument?
3: So. The U.S. is a very strong democracy. It's, you know, one of the longest established democracies in the world. And the longer your democracy has been around, the more deeply entrenched your institutions are, the more deeply the population feels that they live in a democracy, that that's important to them, the more they will notice when it changes. You know, Freedom House ranks every country in the world on their democracy. We put them in buckets, whether they're free, partly free, or not free. The US is a solidly free country. That said, democracy is not an endpoint that you reach, and you achieve it, and then you don't have to worry anymore. Democracy is something that needs to be cultivated and something that needs to be cared for. And our democracy has not been cared for over the past number of years. Sarah
0: Rappucci is the vice president of research at Freedom House. Maggie Penman is the senior producer of Post Reports. Carlos Lozada, the nonfiction book critic at The Post, is, of course, a person who reads a lot of books. And for the past few years, he has read a lot of books about Donald Trump.
5: In fact, in in the summer of, of 2015, when Trump was suddenly doing very well in the polls for the Republican nomination, I approached my editor and said, hey, what if I read a bunch of Trump's books just to see what they tell us about him?
0: And that was just the beginning of Carlos's deep dive into the world of Trump books. He's read biographies of Trump, books about the Trump White House, books written from inside the Trump White House, and also books about what led to Trump, books about the policies and culture and the world that Trump helped create. So, so many books.
5: I say 150, uh, which is probably rounding down.
0: And now Carlos has taken everything that he's learned from those books and he's captured it all in a book of his own. It's called What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. And it's about why all this writing about Trump matters. Carlos recently had a conversation with our colleague Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post podcast Presidential. I found it really fascinating, and we wanted to feature some of that interview here today.
6: I think that because Trump is so present in public life, there's almost a sense that, you know, even without having read all the books that you've read, that people sort of understand his leadership style, you know, they they see kind of every day on the news, on Twitter how he operates. So, you know, I'm curious what you feel like are some new insights that you gleaned from reading all these books that you know, maybe you wouldn't have absorbed just by being kind of an average citizen observer of the presidency.
5: Right. The The weird thing about Trump is that for all his dishonesty, uh, I mean, one of the books was written by our, our fact-checking team, you know, that catalogs just the relentless wave of, you know, falsehoods. Uh, that Trump, for all his dishonesty... There's really not a lot of artifice there. He he presents as he is. In in a sense, it was it was easy to see a lot of this coming. I read several of Trump's own books, spanning the the 80s and 90s, and and more recently. And yes, these are all ghost written books. But even ghost written books reveal something about the subject. Just like like propaganda reveals its intentions, right? In these ghost-written books, you you see all the qualities that we've come to know so well of Trump in the White House: his sense of of grievance and his vengefulness, his insecurities, his mistrust of the press, yet his incessant quest for its approval, right? His his willingness to 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 deceive, to to denigrate opponents. It's all there. So the the Trump years can be shocking. But if you read his own words, they really wouldn't be all that surprising.
6: Have you seen any change in the type of people who are writing books about the presidency today? Like more journalists are writing books, more insiders are writing books.
5: I think one thing we're seeing now is a lot more uh, former officials from presidential administrations writing memoirs uh well before the presidents are even out of office, right? That used to be something that was frowned upon. George Stephanopoulos' memoir of the Clinton years, for example.
6: And just as an aside, Stephanopoulos served as communications director and advisor for Bill Clinton, but then he published a tell-all memoir about his time in the White House in 1999.
5: There was a huge controversy over the fact that, that he wrote it while Clinton was still in office. Um, and so, I think that sort of uh, agree that tacit agreement, you know, that you'll you'll hold your fire until until later on, is is just gone. Uh, and especially with this administration, you're seeing such a revolving door of people people leaving the administration early and immediately is like you know heading straight to a to a literary agent to then come out with their books.
6: So Richard Goodwin, who was an aide to Lyndon Johnson wrote something of a tell-all about Johnson's presidency and how he handled Vietnam. But that book didn't come out until 20 years after Johnson left office. And then there's the book by George Stephanopoulos that came out seven years into Clinton's presidency. But then you have a book like Fire and Fury, right, by Michael Wolff, which is one of the books you studied. And that came out only two years into Trump's presidency. So for those of us who are, you know, average citizens trying to just better understand the presidency, what do you think we lose? And, you know, what do we gain, maybe, from the fact that it seems like this this publishing process um, of presidential books is getting so sped up?
5: The, the rush of books in the moment are exciting and, and, and certainly helpful, but they're the very first draft of the first draft. The thing about Fire and Fury is that it it was such a it was it was the first. It was such a huge publishing event. It sold like crazy. I remember when I got it, I had to basically stay up all night reading it to sort of post my review the next day. Doing I and I had to do that several times during the during the Trump presidency. I did that with with um, with Jim Comey's memoir. But Fire and Fury sort of set a, a template for a lot of the even more rigorously reported Trump books to follow. You know, it was all about getting the craziest anecdote, the, the the mayhem inside the administration, and you know, people steal documents off his desk, or you know, like all this, all this, this kind of chaos inside the White House. And yet, what I've come to through this process of reading all these books, is that the books that have been most meaningful to me have been those that take you out of that bubble. We are better served when we don't obsess over President Trump himself, but when we think about what this era, what the forces that led to Trump and Trumpism say about us as a country.
6: Yeah. And so I think that helps explain why, you know, when you review and write about Trump era books, you're really defining that quite broadly, right? You know, it's not all fire and fury. I mean, you include sweeping American history books like These Truths by Jill Lepore Mm -hmm. and The Soul of America by John Meacham. And then also books like how to be an anti racist and i'm still here yeah and the line becomes a river dispatches from the border right i th-
5: i think there is definitely something to that i think that you have you have different kinds of trump books and there are the insider accounts and the and the journalistic accounts that are obsessively sort of zeroed in on what's happening in the white house and there's there's value to those but i think the kind of thing that you're talking about is found in a whole other set of of trump books that are in a way derived from what's happening in the white house because they build off of the major controversies and debates of this time whether it's over immigration or identity or gender equality, without having to be focused on Donald Trump himself. Some of the best books, the most essential books of the Trump era are not about Trump at all or have him purely as a secondary figure lurking in the background.
6: When you put all of this together, you know, your dive into the intricacies of the Trump presidency, but also your long traverse through books about the history of the republic and the future of democracy? You know, does all of this leave you with the sense that we are experiencing right now a fundamental change in the course of this nation? Or does it leave you with the feeling that what we're doing is really just continuing our journey along the same path?
5: I'm reminded of the line that, you know, the the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And, and I think that not just the Trump era, but I think the the American story in general suggests that yes, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards who knows, right? It it bends towards uh, towards uncertainty. You know, there's no reason to think that things will kind of work out in the end, you know, depending whatever your definition of, of, of workout is. And so I think there there is a sense in which some of these books persuasively make the case that we're in a moment of, of peril about, about American democracy. And so I don't think there's anything inevitable about the persistence of America's democratic values. Uh, I think it's it's something that needs to be constantly safeguarded and and protected.
0: Carlos Lazada is the nonfiction book critic for the Post. Lillian Cunningham is the host of the Post podcast Presidential. By the way, presidential is an amazing crash course in American history. In 2016, Lillian made an episode about every single US president. Yes. 44 episodes. It features interviews with biographers and historians and it puts a lot of things in perspective about the traditions, expectations, and tensions around the job of being president of the United States. It's a great podcast to binge listen and you can find the whole thing by searching for a Presidential in your podcast app or going to washingtonpost.com/presidential. Now, one more thing about the woman behind some of this year's most memorable political satire, Sarah Cooper. She's become a huge star on TikTok and Twitter with a very simple concept, lip syncing the words of the president. We hit the body
2: with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that has him in check, but you're going to test it.
0: Obviously, it's lip syncing, so you can't actually hear what she's doing. But just the way that she impersonates the president and the gestures and the faces that she makes and the things that she does with her eyebrows, it's just very effective. And that's why arts reporter Jeff Edgers wanted to talk to her.
1: I just spent some time and did a profile on Sarah Cooper, who in shorthand would be known best for her TikToks where she lip syncs President Trump. But I found she's much more than that. Sarah describes herself as sort of a straight-A student and people-pleaser to a fault. And her father, Lance, who had brought the family over from Jamaica when Sarah was just three, really wanted her to get a dependable job. And so he told her that theater was a bad idea. So she actually ended up studying economics at the University of Maryland it's
7: taken me a long time to stop thinking this way. And I feel like I've very recently stopped thinking this way where I'm like, no, actually I do know, you know, I do know that I should trust my feelings. But definitely back then I was like, maybe I'm not into theater. Like I really, because of my dad saying that, I really questioned whether or not I was really into it. And so I said, maybe this isn't fun. Maybe I don't enjoy this. And so I actually convinced myself that I it wasn't what I wanted to do.
1: And she got a job first at Yahoo and then Google. And she was basically the leader of a team redesigning Google Docs so no small job
7: it's user experience design okay yeah it's, um, it's also just empathy you know just being able to like see something and know like oh, what are they going to want to do next
1: But while this is all going on, always, she kept like a toe in the world of performance. I mean, she was doing theater classes. She started doing stand-up comedy. She started doing TikTok last year. Her nephews showed her how to use it. And then earlier this year, she heard President Trump at a press conference. And particularly, he was talking about how they were going to form the coronavirus committee.
2: And we have saved. And if you look at on a per 100,000 basis, we're at the best part of the pack right on the bottom germany and us are leading the world germany and the united states are leading the world lives saved per hundred thousand
1: and she just thought boy the way he talks reminds me of the way many of the people who were sort of bluffing their way through things at google talked
2: right and then i see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute one minute and is there a way we can do something like that
1: you know the idea that you fake it till you make it and she lip-synced as president trump's words played and that led to her doing another TikTok, how to medical which ended up being viewed by 25 million people and counting sarah cooper who some people knew but really was not a household name was a star
7: I started this year doing a late night set at a pizza place in Jersey City. Now, here I am, hosting a late night show in a vacant house. Actually, the number of people in the audience is exactly the same.
1: What Sarah Cooper does, it's almost like she's acting. It's a performance. She's not doing the voice. She's not wearing a wig. She's not wearing a costume. The other thing is that you've got a 42-year-old black woman, basically playing a 74-year-old white man. And there's something, I don't even know how to describe it. It changes the way you view the words. The only good thing to emerge out of 2020 might be Sarah Cooper.
7: I still feel like I have to prove myself. I'll never feel like, oh, look at me now. I'll never feel that way. I'll always be like, you know, I'm so glad for this opportunity. I hope you like what I made.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You
0: know what I mean? Jeff Edgers reports on the arts for The Post. Sarah Cooper's new TV special is called Everything's Fine. It premiered this week on Netflix. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at PostReports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. Thanks for listening.